So, in the last couple of days, last uh, couple of weeks, we've been learning in Kail, Nyane Evan Ezer, we're continuing on the topics of Nyane Evan Ezer, Simon Aleph, getting Simon Bays. And one of the things we've been focusing on is the subject, the matter of Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershem, and the related matters. And, of course, you've already heard uh, you know, something on that from me, from the Reish HaKail and the Shiurim we've had so far. Bechlal, when uh, you, you enter, uh, when you approach a uh, halachic subject, so there could be different approaches of how to go about approaching the topic. How do you, what angle do you approach, do you get into the subject from? So there's a technical question. What's your Seder Halimud? Which Sefer are you going to start with? What's, what are you going to learn first, second, third? But also conceptually, are you just, what's your mindset going into the topic? Are you just trying to cover a lot of material and, and see what you get from it? Or are you looking out for something in particular, for particular details? Or are you even going into it with a, a preconceived notion, some preconceptions, some ideas perhaps of how you think this halacha works and you want to see, you want to, you want to test your theory or prove your theory? That has, that has a, a matter in general. When you approach specifically Cherem Derbena Gershim, so I would say that there are some pretty obvious angles you can approach this from. Everyone has heard of, if, if, not, if not personally familiar with, at least has heard of cases where disputes, marital disputes between husband and wife, go off the rails, and things get pretty bad to varying degrees, to the extent that it enters these halachas, this sugya. And the way things have developed in the last couple of decades uh, with the uh, advent and development of uh, Toyanim and whatever effect they've had on the Tchum and Halacha or various organizations that are advocating for different stances. So, uh, from a certain, to a certain extent, we could say that there are two major camps with uh, stated opinions on this subject. You have those that are pro, you could say, women's rights, the rights of the woman and the type of arguments the type of thinking you're likely to hear from that camp is that the system discriminates against women stacked against women first of all the din, the halacha that the woman needs to be divorced by the man she can't divorce him she can't initiate the divorce she can't execute the divorce and more specifically that as a result of that the man, the husband is seemingly able to take advantage of that, to exploit that, and delay the get, withhold the get, out of uh, perhaps just a, a sense of 
revenge, vengefulness. Whereas if, if only halacha worked more like uh, civil law, you know, when it comes to, you come to court, uh, family court, or whatever the precise legal system is, ultimately uh, the court, as the system is structured now, ultimately the court can hear both sides and rule that the marriage should end. That's not how it works in halacha, so that's uh, a point that gets made often. And additionally, in addition to that, the way halacha is practiced today, you don't have enough kfiyah. Let's say halacha does agree that the husband ought to divorce his wife, but there isn't enough enforcement, they're not kaifin, the, the calcitrant husbands to the extent that one might want, or in cases where they think it ought to be done. And then ultimately this leads to a situation in which you have what, what they call, what we call agunis. So the husband didn't disappear, but the husband's withholding the get. So for all practical purposes, the woman is stuck and she can't move on. She can't marry anyone else, so she's an aguna. The husband is being ma'agin, the, the wife, and withholding the get. In addition to that, the arguments that go along with that tend to also be that uh, Perhaps particularly in Eretz Yisrael, they'll argue that the, the Dayanim, the Beistin, they're not sensitive enough, they're not taking the woman's side, they're being very uh, cruel and not understanding towards the women. That's overall, in short, what you're likely to hear from those focusing on the woman's rights. But there's also another camp, perhaps a little less uh, ungenomen in polite company, but it does exist which advocates for men's rights. And you have it's a concept that's out there, both for Yidin, Lahavdal, not, has its own acronym, the men's rights people. And their argument is that Adarabah, it's already been a long time that certainly the courts tend to side more with the woman, with the mother, in all kinds of details. And even in Batidin, there are many examples, many cases, situations where the men and their friends feel that the man got the short end of the deal, whether it's uh, financial arrangements or custody arrangements. And in their view, it's all the fault of those women's rights organizations and all the, all the messaging they've put out there and their strong representation and how they'll intervene in many cases. And their argument is that, on the contrary, the fact that in Yiddishkeit, the husband has the ability to perhaps withhold the get until things are worked out is the one thing that actually gives the husband a little leverage nowadays. Ah, oh, finally the husband has something, has a, has, a, has a card in his deck, something that he can hold out for. So he can negotiate, have a slightly stronger negotiating position and argue for what he thinks is his. Addition... An argument you'll hear is that the reality, they say is, is that it's actually pretty common for the reverse, for the woman to be ma'agin, the man. There's no uh, catchy term for that. Agunim, it's not a term you hear. But for all practical purposes, the woman with the power that she has in Basin today, or Bechlau, she is just as able to drag out the proceedings, refuse to accept the get 
leaving the husband stuck. Because you have Chaim Deber Negershim. That wasn't necessarily the intention of Chaim Deber Negershim, but the practical effect of Chaim Deber Negershim, that you can't divorce a woman against her will, and you can't marry another woman, means that the woman absolutely would be capable of trapping the husband and he will find himself in precisely the same situation that one typically hears associated with the women's experience, the agonist experience. Right, so those are the two camps, the arguments that you might hear, you might have heard. Now in certain situations, when things have gotten really bad, things start heading in the direction of the Heter Meir Abonim, which is the mechanism by which the husband can overcome the Chaim Darbenu Gershom, which was instituted for the woman's benefit to strengthen her position. So it was the Hetamari Rabbanim that can overpower that. And therefore, this aspect of halacha can also be viewed through these varying perspectives, through this prism. So, depending on your perspective, on your point of view, you could say that Hetamari Rabbanim is something in the arsenal for men's rights. Oh, men have a heter meir abanim. Helps them a bit. Otherwise, the man will be helpless. Or, perhaps you'll uh, argue the opposite. That, ah, oh, here's another thing women complain, can complain about. Oh, if it wasn't enough that uh, the husband's in the driver's seat, the oh, not only can he withhold the get, but he can also go ahead and marry someone else without ever resolving the dispute with his wife. So look, the man has all the power. What? Don't women also have to pay for Most cases not. As halacha is practiced today, that's a different topic, not the topic I was going to focus on today, but kaifin, you know, I guess you could say it's a bit of a myth. Everyone remembers the Rambam, kaifin oisya achi but kaifin oisya achi the context is a very narrow case. The Ramam, as it happens, has a more expansive view of how to apply kaifin relative to other Rishayinim, but the halacha as it's practiced today is not according to the Ramam. And the way, based on what Rishayinim said, and then how Achreinim and today's Rabbanim have interpreted the concept of kaifin, it's extremely, extremely narrow and is not relevant in probably most cases. Probably the overwhelming majority of cases. It's not, it's not really a very relevant uh, issue when we're talking about disputes that uh, you hear about uh, on a regular basis. So, so either this, either Hatamir Rabbanim is one thing that uh, can help the husband out, or the opposite, oh, here you go, the husband once again is able to get away with uh, doing whatever he wants, and uh, he has the best of both. Some frequency, yeah. Then there are the particularly controversial ones, the uh, you know cases where there's a lot of bad blood, and then heter meirbanim is part of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you're learning these halachas, when you're learning uh, this sugya, this is uh, these are potential uh, things that you can have in the back of your mind. You're learning through the halachas. Either you're actually siding with one stance, and you're looking for makayas that back up your hunch, your instinct. Or it's something that you are at least aware of and you're learning with that in, in mind and on the lookout for details that might 
give you an indication one way or the other, and perhaps you're uh, more of an independent-minded person, you're open to either side, and perhaps if you uh, learn the halacha with this in mind, you'll uh, see enough makayas that uh, will shape your opinion, and you'll have a somewhat independent opinion that you reached on your own from learning the makayas with this in mind. So, after, after having said that, what am, I, what am I getting at? So, and this year I want to talk about a sefer that I came across, <clears throat> very interesting uh, recent sefer that ties in very much with what I just said. So the sefer is called B'maglet Tzedek. It has a chelik aleph and a chelik beis. The chelik aleph, which is the main part, is a likot midivrei rishenim v'achreinim al ha-heschaivuyot b'inyanei ha-ishos that's what it says on the Sharblat. And uh, who's the author? The Malakit, the Eirech, is someone who identifies as Asher Chilkiyahu, Samachtes, a Sfardi. New York, Ir Tavshin Samach Dalet. And uh, I'm emphasizing these details because having taken a look at it, it's actually not very clear to me whether this is his real name, or whether this is his complete name, there's nothing else out there, no other svarim written under this name, no, uh, no real discussion about the Sefer or this person, and there are indications from the Askamas that it might not be his complete name or his real name. It's also interesting, I thought it was an Artisrael Dika Sefer, and then I realized it says New York, and the next page is a, an address in Queens with different initials, so a bit of an interesting mystery to figure out who this is and what, uh, what their origin story is. But if I had to say what the Sefer is in a nutshell, it's essentially 400, 500 pages, I remember exactly, of making a very, very elaborate halachic argument for men's rights. doesn't say it on the Sharablat, but if you keep reading and you read long enough, you realize that this is essentially what it is. It's going through step-by-step, step, breaks it down into topics, subcategories, sub-subcategories, and just slowly and methodically is building a halachic case to make the argument that we have to stand up for men's rights. And specifically in this context of cherem dirinagershim and things like that, his argument being that according to halacha, can never have a matzav in which a man is stuck without a viable marriage. According to the Torah, a man always has to be in a viable marriage. That's why if a person's not married, he must get married. This is not optional. That's a topic we discussed previously. So if a man finds himself in a situation where the woman's no longer cooperating with him for whatever reason, so he must, he must find himself a way, a path to a viable marriage. So if that means marrying someone else, that's essentially the thrust, the argument of the Sefer, but it does this, like I said, over many hundreds of pages, step by step. So for that reason, it's a pretty intriguing Sefer. I looked around a bit, almost no secondary citations that I could see, I mean, not, almost nobody is talking about the Sefer or quoting the Sefer, which just makes it a bit more interesting to me in a way. Um, just rec- I just saw that just recently last year or the year before, someone wrote an essay on this topic in a more of an academic uh, format, not a halachic format, and he does, does quote the Sefer a little bit. Uh, maybe we'll get to that at some point. Uh, potentially this uh, might uh, take us a few installments to discuss, 
there's the topic itself, and then interesting topics that come up along the way. So that's about as much as I prepared. Usually I like to have uh, everything worked out and prepared. In this case is a bit different. I'm going to freestyle a bit more. So let's just take a look at uh, this Bimagli Tzedek. <clears throat> so yeah, about 450 pages of, uh, of text, of teiches. So, like I said, not a lot of identifying information. It does mention a few Sfardi Rabbanim, Ravadi Yosef, Amrit Chaliyahu. So it seems to, clearly is uh, emphasizing his Sfardi background, the, the background in Sfardi Yeshivas, or having Sfardi Rabbeim. He does have a number of Askamas, like I mentioned. The first one is a pretty big name, Rebeliyo Bakshi Doron. Says, I see the Sefer written by Rav Asher Chilkiyahu, and he explains the Schaivas of the Ksuba and the Chaim de Benigashim and all of this. Various Askamas that emphasize perhaps different aspects of Rebeliyo Abrigel, also relatively uh, big name. A few other smaller names. Uh, additionally, at the end of the Sefer, at the end of each chapter, at the end of each section, he has Sikumim. And then at the end of the entire Sefer, he reproduces all the Sikumim in a row, over, I don't know, 20 pages or so, if you want to get a quicker view of what's going on in the Sefer. Um, I think actually Mishpat Aksuba by Bar Shalom also has the same format. He credits of Bar Shalom as being helpful to him in uh, you know, accumulating uh, material on the subject. So, you know, he's pretty careful to sort of not overtly, he's not ranting and raving, he's not, uh, it doesn't sound like he's an, an angry person, but like I said, you read between the lines, the whole Sefer is making a very, very specific, very long argument. The Bey's which I didn't really look at too much, moves on to uh, like his like the financial stuff, like what are financially, financially, like related to the next the follow-up questions. So like I said, in his Pesach Dover, he just starts off by making a very forceful argument that a man must always be in a viable marriage, the Chiv to for period of Erevia, the Isser to be unmarried, to not have a, not have a wife, many different Makaitis of period of Erevia, also to be shadowy behirhur, you can't be in a matzav where a person has hirhurim, so that's why one of the reasons why a man is supposed to be married. Interestingly, towards the end, he mentions an interesting detail that is actually a chiyuv on the rav or on the dayanim to ensure that there are no unmarried men in their community. This is that says, literally, we have a mitzvah to force, to compel a man to get married. Quotes in the Mukha Yosef that if you have a Ravok, 20 years, based in And the Rambam says, if a person waits the amount of time and doesn't get married, he's over the mitzvah So, really, every mitzvah say, the Torah, Evan Ezra Simon Aleph, Taka writes, based in Kaifin Oyster Lisok, the Lakayamets is Perevirivia, Shlokhanarach, Simon Aleph, Sivgimel, brings us the Halacha. 
Misha overall of Chavshana Vayner Reitz Elisa based on Kaifan Reitz Elisa because they like Ayman of Erevia. Quotes the Ravad Yosef, the Abiyah Eimer, that part of based on Stavkid, Kilu Allah Alamaisa, and that's one of Ravad Yosef, as we know, has some tensions with the Benishchai. The Benishchai was considered the big uh, Iraqi Paisik, and Ravad Yosef uh, often distinguishes himself and differentiates himself by disagreeing and being masig on uh, the Benishchai's Allahic uh, Svarim. So he's masig on the Benishchai. Who uh, in, all, in, many, in many cases, what the Benishchai does essentially is he's more influenced by the Ramah, right? The Vad Yosef's. I heard someone discussing here today. Vad Yosef's whole Indian kaviyachal is that we have to follow the Mechaber almost exclusively, and certainly not follow the Ramah in a case where they disagree. And the Benishchai was more likely to accept uh, input from the Ramah. And uh, he says the Chida says that we don't follow the Ramah. The Ramah says, the Maisa here, the Minig is, uh, we're not Kaif. The Chidah said, we don't follow the Ramah. The Banish Chai said, we don't follow the Chidah, we ignore the Chidah. He said, we're not Kaif. And Bad Yosef comes and says, what do you mean? Bechaver, Bet Yosef, we're Kaif. What does the Chidah Taka say? The Chidah says, Taka Chud, the Ramah, the Marshal say, uh, it's not happening, we're not being Kaif for people to get married. But uh, the Rabbanim, from the Chidah circle, they said, no, any basin that's not kaifer, they're not doing the right thing. In Nashkir Paminigan, we know Taka, the Metzius was that in Yerushalayim, at least, I didn't look this up again, but it's well known, in Yerushalayim, up until, I don't know, 150 years ago, um, they were very, very strongly makbid not to allow a single adult man to live in Yerushalayim. I think for more than 30 days, whatever the number was. They were very, very particular about it, and apparently they didn't force it. So maybe they didn't literally force people to get married, but it was an implied threat because you weren't allowed to remain there. If you were unmarried, it didn't matter what age you were, whether you were 20 or 50 or 80, I think they were very, very strict about it. So the Chidah is coming from that context where it's very much a reality. And the Ramah and the Marshal presumably are coming from a different context in which, you know, just like it doesn't really sound very realistic within how our community operates today, apparently it didn't sound very practical to them back then either. And this probably, it probably has to do with how society is organized in different places. But the Chidah says, uh, no, give a minig, not to do, ignore your minig, overrule your minig, the minig zishkin minig. So this is something that, uh, you just learned in the seminar, this is something that this uh, Mechaber throws in in the Pesach Dover, that uh, he's coming from the Rabbi Yosef stance, that yeah, Kaifin, you know. His next uh, section is Psicha, that was the Pesach Dover. Now the Psicha is the argument that, first of all, what's Chem Derbena Gershom? What was the point of Chem Derbena Gershom? Is Chem Derbena Gershom here to give the woman more power over the man, or was the idea of Chem Derbena Gershom to equalize, to make, to make the power perfectly equal between the two sides? So he quotes a Rosh, there's a Rosh, Shut Rosh, Kalman Beis, Simonov. That says that uh, he's talking, the Rosh is talking about a, a case. Right, the, the man, the woman has a certain type of mom. The man has the power to be Megarish. The original power was to be Megarish. Just like the, if the man has a mom, there's a certain woman 
where uh, she has the power to say, uh, that's it. That's the original concept of the context of Kaifen is when there are certain women that are listed in the Mishnah or the Gemara. So those women are so terrible, it's unlivable. The famous, uh, back to that question of Kaifen, the Rambam says, it's not this, strictly this list. It's anything equivalent that uh, seems like it's a deal breaker. It's not marriage material. The Rosh, not here, I think, but elsewhere, uh, the Rosh says, no, 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 we strictly only follow the list in the Mishnah. So that's, 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 the, big, uh, that's the big fork in the road and the practice, the, how Kaifen is, is used, is utilized. So the Rosh is trying to say here, though, that you have certain women where the woman can say, I'm sorry, it's not acceptable. Kaifen, I say. The man used to have the same power. Now what happens with Chem Derenegershim? Yeah, the woman has a mom, where if the man has the mom, we, we still practice If the woman has a mom, the halacha used to be that he, of course, can be Megarish Balkarcha. Now he can't be Megarish Balkarcha. What's the story? So he says, Rosh says very clearly that Rabbeinu Gershem never is in the Kemalist Angafalan, Leosa Libo El Kayetzibaza, Laagain Hoish, Levatla, Mipiria that's, the, that's what the Ben Gershom had in mind to have a situation in which the husband is stuck and he uses the word la'agen ha'ish. No, of course you, uh, even Rabbi Gershom would agree that in this case, you gershano yitn laksubasak, yikulei hai, layipe betakanasai, kaya ha'isha mi kaya ha'ish. Rabbi Gershom never intended to make the woman more powerful than the man. He saw that men were mistreating women. So, tikin lahashvis kaya ha'ish la kaya ha'ish. Just like the man can't be forced generally. But we can't say that if we're the man to have the mom, the din is still kaifin. But if the woman has the mom, oh, sorry. It's got to be equal. It's got to go both ways. There's no, there's no, no scenario in which the woman has more power. That's the, the Russia's argument. And that is a Nukuda that gets developed in other Svarm and other Paiskim. I'd add, by the way, that from the little that I spot checked in the Sefer, you shouldn't necessarily rely on his presentation, meaning it might be one sided. He might only be quoting the Rush, and those who cite the Rush, he might not let you know that there are others that uh, totally say that the Rush is not applicable. So, but this is just, we're going through a particular presentation. This is just uh, food for thought. This is not. None, this is not it goes, goes without saying, although I'll say it, this now the shir isn't here to take a particular side. It's just, uh, at least in my experience, it's almost like the woman's uh, side is more prevalent and more famous and more common, and I want to provide some uh, additional perspective. It's just interesting to hear how this person makes their argument. And then he goes on to quote Bukhayinus that used also this, this term of igun for a man. That it's literally uh, goes for both, uh, goes in both ways. He says, "Is Rabbeinu Simcha and the Rav brought in the Marshal that uh, just like we're makel b'shemiguna deisha, so kol shekain deish. We're certainly makel for the iguna deish tzayim meruba." There's a Gemara that's a bigger tsar for uh, for a man to be trapped with uh, without an outlet to his urges. It's mitzvah peri 
Why, why am I the first one to mention it? Before Gershim, the taka wasn't the concept of Igunadesh. Now that there's Khem Dabinu Gershim, there is a Igunadesh, so we have to discuss this and figure out what we're going to do about it. The different Makairis along these lines. And down to Akhrenim today that at least mention in passing, again, you have to check everything that's quoted, but Akhrenim that's at least mentioned in passing, the idea of Igunadesh, we don't want to allow Igunadesh. Goes and quotes that Hirhuri Aveda are very, uh, very severe for a man. You're not allowed to allow or leave a man in that situation. So that's the argument of his psicha. And then we get to his mavai. So we got the pesel. we got the psicha. Now the mavai. The mavai gets more directly into uh, what the main portion of the, the huge portion of the sefer deals deals with. And. What I want to focus on for the rest of this year is we heard a lot about Chaim Dabrina Gershom. We're familiar a bit with uh, the practice among the Ashkenazim. But I'm not sure if we're familiar or you heard uh, about how things work for the Svaradim. Because there's a, a bit of a misconception out there, I think, uh, those who haven't studied the topic, that uh, Ashkenazim outlawed polygamy marrying multiple women with the Chaim Dabrina Gershom. Okay, so ever since then, Ashkenazim and polygamy are two things that don't go together. So the assumption is that, I guess, by implication, the Svardim were practicing polygamy up until sometime recently. But it's actually uh, very much not like that. It's a lot more uh, interesting than that. And as we'll discuss a bit, and I'll, uh, I'll uh, go off to discuss a different safer. Um, the Svardi Ksuba actually has two important passages. One line in the Svardi Ksuba is, where is it? Um, I'm just not spotting it, but it's somewhere here. V'lo yisa, v'lo yishadech, v'lo yekadesh, shum isha acheres aleha, ki im berushos based on atzadek. That's what it says in the standard Sephardi Ksuba. He will not marry anyone else. It's one of his chayvias in the Ksuba. And then at the end of the Ksuba it says, V'gam nishba shvua chamura b'tkiyas kaf al das hamakim baruchu v'al das hanishboim b'hemes la'ashur al-lakayim iskol ha'kasu v'alav b'shtar ksuf t'da bilti shum shinoi u'tmura b'tachbula klal v'ikr. So there's a shvua at the end for everything in the in the ksuba, including the loyisa isha acheres. So that's that's where the svardim are coming from. So instead of a chaim debrinagershim, a top-down uh, decree that we're or minig that we're afraid to violate, we simply, on a case by individual basis, make every single chassam commit in writing b'shvua that he will not marry another woman. This is part of the contract, the agreement with this woman, the marriage of this woman, and there's a shvua backing that up. So the first large section of the sefer, since the author is a Svardi, so he's coming from the Svardi perspective, so his first arichas is actually dealing with the shvua, and basically he wants to make the argument at length that just because there's a shvua doesn't mean that if a man finds himself trapped and there's no marriage uh, for all practical purposes, the shvua, the, the, the clause in the ksuba and the shvua wouldn't mean that that means that that is trapping him right now. But simply, it doesn't apply, it should be understood, it should be obvious that it doesn't apply to that case, and he should not feel bound by it. 
Then after that argument at length, over, I think over 100 pages, he moves on to Chaim de Gershom and also tries to make similar arguments about how Chaim de Gershom should be applied. But for now, I want to go off a bit and elaborate a bit on that topic of the, the Shavuot, the, the Tanai and the Shavuot, the Svardim make, because I think it's uh, pretty interesting, and like I said, I don't think it's uh, very particularly common knowledge, I assume, outside of the, uh, the Sephardic community, although, as we see from the Sephardim discuss this, it isn't necessarily that uh, obvious to every Sephardic chassan. Not every uh, chassan and kala are reading the fine print, are uh, hopping, are catching exactly what's going on, and uh, I think Rabbi Yobak Shadaron in his Haskama, he mentions that, oh, I had a case where uh, the, the chassan had no idea Let's take a look. How did he write it? He writes, We had an Avrich Tamit Chacham that uh, the marriage didn't go well. And the bed didn't say they have to divorce. But the woman refused. And the man was suffering for years. And at, at some point they decided there's no chance that she'll accept the get. They told him to be Mekada Shanisha. A basin gave him a hetter. And since he's from Bnei Dota Mizrach, so he didn't need the Hatter Meir Abanim for the Chayyim to be Gershom, so he went ahead and got married Kedat Moshev Yisrael. Um, and then he came to Bliobak Shidaron to update him to report. By the way, I got married. It was after the Kedushin. So Bakshidaron says, "Wait a second. Did the Beistin was the Beistin Matir Yeshvua that you swore in your Ksuba not to marry another woman? Because that's the minute that when the Beistin are Matir to marry another woman." And he says, Hitbarer, that they had no clue what I was talking about. Nobody knew, nobody thought about it. I spoke to the Rav who was Matir, and is there, is there a Shavua here that's uh, stopping him, that's preventing him? Obviously, this Sefer is coming to argue that uh, the Shavua isn't very particularly relevant and powerful, and uh, it shouldn't be a major problem, an impediment to, to the man. But it's just an example of how uh, even, uh, apparently, even Svardim aren't necessarily uh, fully aware of the significance. Just like, I don't know how many Ashkenazim know uh, what their Mishayev towards their wife, the big Mishayev uh, Sintak. So if you look in uh, Mishpat Aksuva by Blio uh, Chaim Bar Shalom, some of you had the uh, pleasure of hearing last year. So as we know, it's, uh, I believe, eight volumes long. So in Chelek Dalet, in chapter 33, goes through the Ksuba line by line and interprets every line and every word. So Parak Lamed Gimel is on the line of Laisa Isha. So we're just going to go through, this is, you know, many, in, in aggregate, it's many hundreds of pages, so I'm just trying to uh, summarize the interesting points, the main points here. So Ben Gershom, of course, has this famous cherem, but according to the Shulchan Aruch, as we quoted last week, Takan Mechaber specifically says that his takana did not spread in any way, it expired, etc. That doesn't mean that the Svardim are uh, running around advocating polygamy. So instead, there's a Tanai in the Ksuba. And he says from around the Rush and onwards, the Rush moved to Spain, this has become a Nusach Kavua in the Svardi Ksubas. So he quotes the Rashba. The Rashba, on the one hand, testifies, attests to the fact that the Chaim de Gershom did not catch on, did not spread in their region. At the same time, um, the Rashba also writes that, oh, it's not like in uh, Spain, it's not like people are just uh, marrying multiple women right and left. 
You had cases where people married a second woman because they didn't have children, and even that, they had to do kama pijusin, they had to really speak to their wife and really get her on board, and still none of the, those marriages ever worked out, that Ashba says. So we certainly don't want men having the wrong attitude that uh, women are disposable. So the case was, a man had gone ahead and just married a second woman without uh, his first wife's agreement. And the Rajbah is essentially saying, it's not okay, it's not how uh, we operate here. So clearly in time of the Rajbah, there was no Tanai. Otherwise the Rajbah would have referred to, he would have said, oh, what about the Tanai? He didn't mention the Tanai. So that's evidence that there was no Tanai in the time of the Rajbah. But the Rush already writes, Allah. And they're pretty close. I mean, they're essentially the same time. They overlap. So uh, around that time is clearly when they started spreading in writing. And then you find later achreinim that referred to it in passing. Of course, there's the the ksubas that say shli yisa isha acharas. Mentions la yisa la yishadich la yikadish of a triple lashon just to cover all your bases. Also, it says, Shumisha, what's the Shum? The Shum is any type of woman, a Pilegesh, this, that, the other thing, no, uh, no loopholes. The word Allah gets into the word Allah. Bichayeha, some Ksubas used to say Bichayeha. However, what if you have one of these situations where, uh, well, really the husband uh, isn't really in a marriage anymore for all practical purposes? Nishtatis, Meredes. So that's why there's an extra line, ki im based in Hatzadek. So that got tacked on later at some point. So the Ksuba, in essence, has many layers. Each line could have entered at some different point. But they added, ki im based in Hatzadek. And that's the idea of that there is a way out if based in the rules that that's the case. What's the based in Hatzadek? So it's clarifies that based on Atzadik specifically doesn't means that you can't just go to any basin of three. You have to go to some big, formal, major basin. Back in Eretz Yisrael, I meant the biggest basin in Eretz Yisrael. So that's, uh, that's what he covers in Perek Lamed Gimel. But the main arichas that he has on this topic is actually in Perek Membez which is where he focuses much later in Chelekei on the Shavuah. By the way, what's the, what's the, how's the Tanai enforced? What's the enforcement mechanism for the Tanai? The implication of the Tanai is that if he does marry another woman, he will have to pay his first wife, the Naden and the Ksuba up front as a Knas, and he'll be called an Avarian. He says, that, but Lavdafka though, that that actually works. Lavdafka that you can actually enforce that in court. So it could ultimately be that the whole Shavuah is really just a scare tactic without real teeth, more than anything else. And he gets into that uh, Indian at greater length in Parak Membez. So there also used to be a Tanai not to be Megarish Balkarcha. But today that's not part of the Ksuba, because it's Bekalvachimer Mayatanai. So effectively, Svardim have the same rules in place. It's just the underlying uh, halachic mechanism, instead of a Khairim, it's uh, a thing that goes in your Ksuba. In Perakman Base, he talks about the, about the Shavuah. So he says, really, we see that the notion, the concept, the existence of a Shavuah from a husband to his wife 
going into the marriage that he won't marry another woman is as early as the Go'inim. Now really it's been pointed out elsewhere that if you look through Tanakh, Chazal, you don't find many cases, explicitly at least, of polygamy. There was no Chedim, there was no Minig, and there was no Shavuah. It's pretty clear that it was not uh, generally practiced. It's even in Tanakh. Now, it's not, it's not always possible to know with certainty because obviously the stories in Tanakh and Chazal are very incomplete. They're only referring to very specific stories. Obviously, we're only get, getting a tiny fraction of what life was like. So you can't make huge generalities, but certainly not the norm. You don't see that as the norm. Nothing about what we see in Tanakh and Chazal suggests that that was the norm per se. Certainly not in the time of Chazal. So from the time of the Ge'inim, from the Ge'inim's era onward, we see instances, references in individual cases where the woman insisted that the husband swear not to marry someone else or other things, but that wasn't a takana, that was just on a case-by-case basis. It says in Mitzrayim, Egypt has this minig of the Shavu and the Ksuba already for a very long time. And he says, some Achreinim suggest and imply that Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, who's the martyr of the Asra of Mitzrayim? The Rambam. So even though we don't have explicit records of the Rambam instituting this, but perhaps we can assume that this is somehow linked to the Rambam. He goes through this, the Pnim and the Haris, and you know, many things that we're saying here, if you look in the Haris, you can see that far greater length with far more references. It says, the Mechaber, what's the, what's the Mechaber's take? The Mechaber has a Seder Chalitza, after Simakov Samachtas, the Seder Chalitza Bektsara, and Seif Mamvav, the Machaber writes, Bizmana Zeh, Afagav the Lekha Chem de Rabbeinu Gershem, Shaloi Gazar Ella at Seif Elaf Hachamishi, so the Machaber repeats again that Chem de Gershem, it expired, it's not relevant. Mikol Makaim, Kol Adam Ashbiyan Oisei Beis Nisuin, Shaloi Yisal Ishtay. So the Machaber actually says in pretty strong words that Kol Adam is Nishba. Mashbiyan Oisei. In other words, it's not really optional anymore. It's not a case-by-case, it's not a negotiation to have before the wedding. It's pretty much matter of course, matter of fact. So, Mechaber is effectively creating a parallel gzeda to Chayyim Dabrinu Gershom. And that was the Minig Eretz Yisrael. Mechaber, first and foremost, represents Eretz Yisrael, Minig Eretz Yisrael, Pesach Eretz Yisrael, which is, of course, about Yosef's whole argument more recently. The Mechaber, the Mechaber's sway, the sway of Pesach and Eretz Yisrael, as we know, happened to include the countries nearby, so Syria, Lebanon, Mitzrayim, tend to have the same dinim and menagim. So, like I said, effectively, even if there's no cherem, if you don't, you don't go by the cherem of according to Shulchan Aruch, we have our own, our own takana. And Eretz Yisrael, he says, for 500 years, essentially since the Mechaber, 500 years straight, that's been the Minik, and it was no longer voluntary, it was already a Nusach Kavua, everyone had to go along with it. In one of the Haaris, he, uh, he gets into like a historical argument. He says, if Mazuz claimed somewhere that most Ksubis that he saw didn't have this language. So he goes toe-to-toe with him and says, uh, actually, I've seen even more Ksubis, and most Ksubis that I've seen do have. You also have to know which countries we're talking about, because we're about to get to the geography. So this is interesting. This is what he says. He says, all the Kailas around the Eretz Yisrael, like I just said, that followed the Pesach of Eretz Yisrael, 
So they also have the same practice that Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, which are literally bordering Eretz Israel, Turkey, further, still pretty close, Greece, which was uh, part of Turkey, part of the Ottoman Empire, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, all part of the Ottoman Empire, essentially. But also Spain and Portugal, as we saw uh, from the Rosh about certainly writing the Tanai, but also the Shavuah. And also Morocco, as we're going to say shortly, most Morocco ultimately well, had an influx from Spain. But in the European countries where there was a Chayim de Gershom, there was no Shavuah because she's protected by the Chayim. So France, Italy, Holland, London, so even when there were Sephardi communities there, they didn't have the Shavuah because geographically the Shavuah wasn't a thing there. And then he adds, there also were countries which continued practicing polygamy. And that would be Yemen, India, Baghdad, Iraq, Persia, Georgia, Gruzia, Bukhara, Libya, and Algeria. Rav Mazuz, I didn't go and confirm that that's the context of their dispute, but Rav Mazuz comes from Jerba, which I believe is an extension of Ireland of Algeria. So these are countries where they literally continued practicing polygamy, so of course there was no Shavuah stating otherwise. And then in the footnote, he goes into great length and quotes Macarius to back up his uh, contentions. Um, didn't look at it again this time, but the last time I looked this up, he, uh, he says he found there's actually a mucker in Iraq from not that long, the Yaskal Avdi, it was like a hundred years ago. The Yaskal Avdi writes, Gam ata baharbe makoymes ba'ashur, which was a term used for Iraq, uparas roiv kachoyl yeshlehem bez nashim. So the way the Yaskal Avdi makes it sound is, is that it was very prevalent, it was predominant, which is interesting. And then slowly European culture uh, started uh, penetrating the Middle East, colonization, etc., etc. And then at some point, even in Iraq, etc., it uh, went out of fashion. This Morocco is interesting. Big parts of Morocco have a Spanish influx, so they brought the Shavuot with them. But then there was a certain region where the Spanish didn't arrive, and they, neither at a later point did European culture, and they also continued uh, marrying more than one woman. Um, this is something, uh, incidentally, this is something that I believe I've looked it up, and it's not written explicitly anywhere online, but it seems to be very common knowledge that the Baba Sali, who I believe came from that region of Morocco, had four wives. I, I, I don't know if they're all concurrent, but presumably some of them concurrently. Uh, the way I heard it was is that when he came to Eretz Yisrael, when he, when he emigrated, and polygamy is not acceptable, so one of his wives ended up in France and, 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 and stuff like that. They ended up just getting split up. But that's actually a pretty prominent example, name that's a household name that's tied to polygamy. Interestingly, this doesn't seem to be a fact that gets uh, commonly stated. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll pause here, but this is just, like I said, uh, within the context of talking about the power a man does or doesn't have, so a big factor to know if you're looking beyond your uh, Ashkenazi perspective is the shvua that the Svardim have. Chalice.